Hello and welcome to my podcast, Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Ames. Did you know that in the United States, Native Americans disappear at twice the per capita rate of white Americans? Why is this and what can we do to stop it? All that and more coming up on this week's episode of Facing Race. On my first episode of Facing Race, I mentioned that I want to talk about issues related to all races and not just African Americans. So today I decided to talk about an issue that affects all races, but particularly affects Native Americans at a much higher rate. So I wanted to talk about the missing and murdered Indigenous women, MMIW epidemic, that affects Indigenous people in Canada and the United States. And that's including the First Nations, Inuit, Matisse, and other Native American communities. In Canada, it's actually been described as a national crisis and a genocide on reservations all across the country. So I just wanted to spread a little bit of insight and talk about a couple specific cases. And I guess before I get into that, I should back up and talk a little bit about Native Americans in the United States. And later on, I definitely do want to do an episode that talks more about history of Native Americans. But I do just want to talk a little bit about the Native American reservations to begin with. So the Indian reservation system established tracts of land called reservations for Native Americans to live on as white settlers took over their land. And the main goal of the Indian reservations was really to bring Native Americans under U.S. government control, as well as minimize conflicts between Indians and settlers, and essentially encourage Native Americans to take on the ways of the white man. But many Native Americans were forced onto these reservations with really catastrophic results and really devastating, long-lasting effects. So one such issue started uh, with the Indian Removal Act on May 28th, 1830. The Indian Removal Act was signed into place by President Andrew Jackson. And the act essentially allowed the government to divide the land west of the Mississippi to give Indian tribes in exchange for the land that they lost. So the government would pick up the cost of relocating the Indians and helping them resettle into their new homes. But the Indian Removal Act was really controversial. Uh, But that being said, Jackson argued that it was the best option since a lot of settlers had already rendered Indian lands pretty incompatible with sustaining their way of life. So after the act was put into place, over the next few years, the, the Chickawa and the Creek Indians were forced to move westward on foot, often in chains with really little or no food and supplies. Several years later, in 1838, then-President Martin Van Buren sent federal troops to march the remaining southern Cherokee holdouts about 1,200 miles to Indian territories in the plains. And as you can imagine, a lot of disease and starvation were really rampant, and thousands died along that way, which is why we call that journey the Trail of Tears. So starvation was pretty common, and then on top of that, living in really close quarters 
basically hastened the spread of diseases that were brought on by the white settlers. So Indians, once they were there in the reservations, they were encouraged, or I should really say forced, to wear non-Indian clothes. They learned to read and write English. They had to sew. They raised livestock. Missionaries also attempted to convert them to Christianity and really pressured them to give up a lot of their spiritual beliefs. So if this wasn't bad enough, then several decades later, in 1887, the Dawes Act was signed into place by President Grover Cleveland. And this basically allowed the government to divide reservations into small plots of land for individual Indians. So the government hoped to legislate uh, this, this particular thing in order to help Indians sort of assimilate more into white culture easier and faster and as a way to improve their daily life. But as can be expected, the Dawes Act had a very devastating impact on Native American tribes. It actually decreased the land owned by Indians by more than half, and it opened up even more land to white settlers and railroads. So much of the reservation land wasn't even good for farming, and many Indians couldn't actually afford the supplies needed to farm. Then in the 1930s, the government actually changed a few laws, but of course the damage to the land and the loss of culture had already been done. So this sort of leads us to present day where a lot of reservations are still really underfunded and underprotected. I think we've we've definitely seen this in the most recent uh, cases with COVID-19 and a lot of reservations just not getting any of the funding or any of the resources that uh, the government promised. And not only is this the case, but there's many issues uh, that have occurred on reservations that also don't get uh, the attention that they deserve. So according to one FBI statistic, Native American women are actually murdered and sexually assaulted at rates as high as 10 times the average in certain counties in the United States. And these are crimes that are overwhelmingly committed by individuals outside the Native American communities. So these crimes are particularly likely in very remote settings where you might see transient workers, that is oil workers, for example, or people who live in temporary housing units. Uh, Those are often called man camps on or very close to tribal lands. So in areas like Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, etc. And a lot of these crimes kind of fall between jurisdictional cracks. So it sort of leaves victims and their families without any real recourse. A lot of activists describe the crisis as a legacy of generations of government policies, of forced removal, land seizures, and violence that's just continually been inflicted on indigenous people. And hundreds of these women, hundreds of, of the missing women never return. And families say they've really struggled to find counseling and treatment for those that do even end up coming back. And a lot of them are, are trying to cope with the trauma of being trafficked. Some are confronted with addiction or, or they're grappling with violence they suffered on the streets. And then of course, m- many of them just disappear without a trace. Uh, I should also point out, too, that while many of these cases occur in the Southwest or in the Pacific Northwest, there are also a lot of areas in Canada where Indigenous women are at risk. So one one such place would be British Columbia and an area known as the Highway of Tears. 
And the Highway of Tears actually refers to a section of the Yellowhead Highway 16, which runs from Prince Rupert on the, the northwest coast of British Columbia, Columbia to the central interior city of Prince George. And about 23 First Nations border that, that area, that Highway 16. And the region is, is really characteristic, characterized by poverty. And until about 2017, it really lacked adequate public transportation. So that forced a lot of locals to hitchhike as their only form of, of transit. So that was sort of their way of getting to work or to visit uh, relatives, etc. So the exact number of women who have disappeared or have been murdered along that Highway 16, the, the Highway of Tears, is disputed. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or they, they call them the RCMP for short, acknowledged about 18 murders and disappearances on the Highway of, of Tears, dating back to 1969. But a lot of indigenous groups argue that the number is misleading and it's actually higher. And according to the Human Rights Watch organization, British Columbia has the highest rate of unsolved murders of indigenous women and girls in Canada. And of course, you know, this problem is not unique to British Columbia. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, is actually considered a national crisis by many Canadians. And the federal government announced in 2015 it would launch an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And in that, that same year, Carolyn Bennett, who is now the Federal Minister of, of Indigenous Relations in Canada, she claimed that the national number of murders and, and missing Indigenous women and girls is likely over 1,200 at this point. And some of these cases, they have been solved. For example, the, the case of Monica Jack. She was the youngest victim at 12 years old. She disappeared in May of 1978 when she was riding her bike near Merritt, British Columbia. And her remains were found in 1996. And Gary Taylor Hayden was a 67-year-old man at the time, and he was charged in 2014 for her death, and also that of an 11-year-old girl, uh, Catherine Mary Herbert. His trial began in 2018, and the British Columbia Supreme Court did find him uh, guilty of first-degree murder. So in some cases, they were able to find out who did it and they were able to press charges. But then you also have cases that just never go unsolved. Uh, One of these cases would be Alberta Williams, who disappeared in, in August of 1989. She was 24 years old and her body was found several weeks later near Prince Rupert, right in British Columbia. In 2016, the CBC News actually produced an eight-part podcast about her death. It's entitled, Who Killed Alberta Williams? But again, these are just examples of cases that have have really gone unsolved for years. Another one is Ramona Wilson. She was hitchhiking to her friend's house in Smithers, British Columbia in June of 1994, and her remains were found about a year later later in April 1995 along Highway 16 near the airport. And Ramona was was actually a member of the Gitamax band, and her story was part of a 2006 documentary film by Metis filmmaker Christine Welsh. It's called Finding Dawn, and it talks about her as well as about other missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. 
So when we hear about cases like the ones in Canada or the ones in the Pacific Northwest, we sort of ask ourselves the question of why does this keep happening and what can we do about it? And if we look at a lot of these cases, there's really a, a, an array of causes behind them. So some of it is related to domestic violence, sex trafficking. Also, there's a lot of police indifference. Uh, racism certainly plays a part. Lack of resources allocated to tribal governments and a complex jurisdictional issues between tribal and federal local law enforcement. All of that really, it slows down the investigation, particularly in the first few days, which is extremely critical. And it makes it really easy, or I should say at least easier, for non-Indigenous people to get away with these crimes. For most criminal cases, the tribal courts actually lack the ability to prosecute perpetrators who are not tribal members. And although the, the 2013 Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act did allow and does allow tribal courts to pursue domestic violence cases committed by non-Native people, not all tribes exercise that jurisdiction and many other types of physical and sexual violence are not covered by the exception. So it's easier, as I said, for people, because we know a lot of times these crimes are committed by non-Native people, it's easier for them to get away and not be prosecuted. Uh, we do know that last year alone, about 5,600 Native American women were reported missing. That's according to FBI's National Crime Information Center. But it's probably safe to say the actual number is a lot higher, in part because the local authorities sometimes mistakenly list the victims as Latina or, or white. So things that have been done and things that the government uh, currently are, are working to do in November, President Trump did sign an executive order establishing a federal task force to explore what he termed a crisis of violence against Indigenous women. We also saw that Attorney General William Barr announced about $1.5 million would be targeted to hire missing persons coordinators in the U.S. Attorney's offices that handle large caseloads in Native American areas like Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and also to establish better protocols for handling such cases. For years and years, activists and, and even state officials have acknowledged the inability of tribal officials and local law enforcement to work together to solve them, but nobody's really done anything to fix that problem. Up north in Canada, we saw um, in 20. 16 in September 1st, 2016, they signed the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls that was launched as a key government initiative to end the disproportional high levels of violence faced by Indigenous women and girls. The inquiry was also the government of Canada's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action. And essentially in that action, it was calling upon the federal government and working along with the Aboriginal organizations to appoint a public inquiry into the cases of the victimization of Indigenous women and girls. And the inquiry's mandates were including things like investigation into missing and murdered women, as well as looking into different uh, abuses that had been suffered by these women and girls. And the government of Canada did sort of take more of a family first approach to kind of address these 
these recommendations. So they recognize the the courage in the family members, you know, the commitment to really finding the murders, uh, finding the murders of these girls. And the government did agree to allocate about $50 million in funding to a variety of different things, such as providing health and support services to survivors and their families. They committed to a national oversight body at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They wanted to support and review police policies and practices, and also commemorate the lives and legacies of missing Indigenous, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. If you're interested in learning more about missing and indigenous women, there are a couple resources to check out. One is the Native Women's Wilderness Organization. It can be found at www.nativewomenswilderness.org slash MMIW. That talks a little bit about how uh, or different organizations are helping women as well as also the families of missing and murdered indigenous women. And there's another one uh, that's specifically about Canada. It's www.mmiwg/ffada.ca. Also, if you're interested in podcasts, one recommendation is actually from uh, one of my friends and loyal listeners, Colleen, who suggested a podcast called the it's called Missing and Murdered Finding Chloe is actually by the CBC and it talks about uh, an indigenous girl and and her siblings. So as always, I, I encourage everyone to check out books, films, podcasts, articles, etc. because there's always a lot to learn and there's always more information to learn and share with each other. Okay, so now it is time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so this week the question is about reparations. How would reparations work in the United States and is it a good idea? So yeah, I think reparations is a really interesting topic and it's definitely one that sort of comes up every few years. I think it's also, we've seen, well, we saw a little bit earlier on uh, with a democratic uh, race, a lot of candidates were talking about reparations like Bernie Sanders and Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, etc. And it's something that has come up in the House of Representatives. There has been bills uh, that were put forth. They never really went anywhere, but there's always suggestions every couple of years about reparations. So it's an interesting topic and it's an interesting conversation because I, I don't think that it's necessarily super clear cut. I think on one hand, the idea of it is is really important, but I also think it's hard because I don't think you can just necessarily hand out money. I mean, it's true in the sense that, as I mentioned in the last episode, obviously, you know, we say slavery ended in 1865, but it didn't entirely end because it wasn't as if Black people could just go out and buy any house they want or get any job that they wanted. There's a lot of issues. There were a lot of issues and there continue to be a lot of issues around equality. So I think the idea with reparations is that it would help to, it would really try and help African-Americans reach a level of economic equality. But I think it's it's hard because 
there's the question of like, okay, how much are you going to give people? What would this look like? Is this sort of writing a one-time check and giving it to people? Is this providing monthly payments? Also, how do we determine who's going to get it? Is it people that can prove that they're descendants of slaves? Do some people get more money than others? I think it's an important conversation to have, but I think it's also a really, really complicated, complicated issue as well. So I have to say that I really, at this point, I don't think I know enough about it to say one way or another. I don't think I can say, yes, absolutely, like African-Americans and Native Americans like need reparations. But at the same time, I do understand the need for it. I mean, I think particularly let's say with the Native, looking at Native American communities, there has been different things over the years in which the government has tried to pay back Native Americans for the land. But I think that's, that's even been hard. That hasn't happened in every state. That hasn't really been, a lot of the funding hasn't uh, actually made it to Native American areas, to the reservations. Uh, Even as I mentioned, you know, recently now with COVID, uh, reservations were promised a lot of of supplies because there's a very high rate of of covid among uh, Native Americans on reservations, and the government had promised certain things like masks and supplies and money, and it never came so I think when if you had something like reparations, I think it would really be challenging and I think it would definitely need to be well planned out and well thought out as how are we going to do this how are we going to be allocating the money or if it's not money is in the way of for example scholarships or grants educational grants what is it going to look like so again I'm not a hundred percent sold on you know the idea of reparations but I think it's a I think it's an important conversation to have and I think it should be at least explored and we should talk about it, but I don't know exactly the best solution and the best answer. So uh, today to finish out the episode, I wanted to share a quote from a Native American. Her name was Crystal Quintasket, or she was also known as Morning Dove. She was a Native American author and activist and she said, Everything on earth has a purpose. Every disease, an herb to cure, and every person, a mission. This is the Indian theory of existence. So I like that quote a lot. I think it's, uh, she makes a good point that uh, everybody's sort of here to do something and everybody's on this earth for, for a specific purpose. So I like that a lot. All right, well, thank you so much for listening. And as always, continue to to read and share information with your friends and family. And thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.